Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for you again today. We're slowly getting closer to actually knowing who won some things in the midterms. They called the Arizona governor's race uh, for Katie Hobbs last night. Amazing, considering where we thought this race was a week ago, but Kerry uh, uh, Lake denied. And so there have now been four flips in governor's races. Two we knew were coming from the Democrats in Massachusetts and Maryland. They also pick up Arizona. Republicans, though, picking up Nevada uh, in this election cycle. There's still a bunch of House races out, about 14 last I saw, uh, most of them in California. Republicans, by most counts, now at 217, so they just need one more, but uh, a little cushion would be pretty nice, too. The only outstanding governor's race is Alaska, where uh, Dunleavy is uh, up huge over his opponents, but it's that ranked choice system, Jim. So even though he's up 29 with 72% of the vote counted, we got to figure out if he actually stays above 50 and then uh, go on from there. But uh, let's uh, move on to our good martini now, and this one's coming to us from the courts. Uh, from USA Today's reporting, a federal appeals court blocked President Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness program, further crushing the hopes of more than 26 million Americans who have applied for the relief, discouraging millions more who were eligible for the boost, and potentially killing the president's signature program. Gee, do you think USA Today is a little disappointed with this decision, Jim? The Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals granted an injunction sought by six Republican-led states that argued Biden exceeded his presidential authority when he cited COVID-19 as a national emergency to cancel student loan debt for millions of borrowers. The states also said they would lose out on future tax revenues under Biden's plan. The states are Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, and South Carolina. And so the fight's not over. These are just injunctions. you got to have hearings. It'll probably end up at the Supreme Court. But, you know, given the composition right now, I, I would say our odds are better than even uh, at winning this. It's potentially going to make young people angry again the next time they get to vote if they don't get this relief. But on the constitutional grounds, Jim, this is clearly the right call. Yeah, I look at this every time a court case goes our way on the constitutionality of whether a president can do something like this. And it goes our way. I look at it as a, as a happy gift that I was not counting on. Unfortunately, we've seen some judges, you know, particularly out in the, some of the West Coast circuits, uh, interpret the law just about any way they like and kind of see it as, well, this is a president I like and I like what they're doing. So I don't really believe anybody has standing to challenge this or I don't really believe this is any kind of a legitimate uh, issue for the president's authority. The ends justify the means, which is everything a judge is not supposed to be thinking here. So I'm pleasantly surprised by this. I, I, I shouldn't say surprised. On the merits, it seems straightforward. And the argument that, well, the president did something, but there's not a single person in America who has standing to challenge what he did, seems like an absurd reading of the law. It seems like a, a bizarre situation in which you could say, well, because once you once you you kind of extend this mentality, well, the president could you know theoretically forgive all of the debt for everyone forever. Right there, there would you know if he doesn't have any constitutional limit on this, then he doesn't have any constitutional limit on that. So, pleasantly surprised. Obviously, this will get appealed. It's probably a long way from being over, but I'd much rather see these you know lower court decisions going our way than the other way. Yeah, I would assume some state uh, affiliated schools are involved in this student debt forgiveness. So to say that they don't have standing to bring the challenge, uh, I would think that's a bit of a thin argument. But that's exactly what the Eighth Circuit uh, reversed here, according to the USA Today article, is that the uh, reversed a lower court decision saying that those states had failed to 
uh, established standing. Unbelievable. But uh, we'll see where it goes from here. But I like our odds, uh, given where the Supreme Court is right now. In the meantime, if you want to get the, the bad taste of an extra constitutional power grab out of your mouth, Quip toothbrushes, in addition to good court decisions, can definitely help with that. Uh, good health starts with good habits. Quip makes it easy by delivering all the oral care essentials that you need to care for your mouth. The Quip electric toothbrush is loved by more than 7 million mouths. It's got timed sonic vibrations with 30-second pulses to guide you to a dentist-recommended two-minute clean. It has a lightweight and sleek design for both adults and kids, it's got a multi-use travel cover that doubles as a mirror mount, so there's less clutter around your sink. And it's got reusable handles in a range of sleek metal hues, including the best-selling all black and all pink, as well as bright plastic colors that are sure to make a pop on your bathroom counter. My kids absolutely love their electric toothbrushes. They uh, get excited about the buzzing, the pulses when it's time to switch sides and so forth. And they insist on brushing for all two minutes until it stops. How much better can it get than that? So if you go to getquip.com slash martini right now, you'll get your first refill of brushes free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash martini. Spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash martini. Quip is the good habits company. All right, Jim, on to our bad martini now. And there were a myriad of issues that should have broken heavily in favor of Republicans in the midterm elections last week and in the weeks that preceded that with early voting and so forth. We had inflation, we had schools, we had crime. And another big one, really from day one from this administration, considering some of the executive orders that were signed immediately after Biden's inauguration, the border. Uh, repealing Title 42, uh, the Remain in Mexico policy, and basically just hand-waving everybody through. Well, guess what? Things are not getting any better. In fact, they're getting a whole lot worse. Bill Malugin over at Fox News is constantly over at the border, and he's got the numbers for October. Of course, they've been officially released, and other folks are reporting on them as well. But he says, CPB reports that there were 230,000 678 migrant encounters at the border in October, the first month of fiscal year 2023. It is an enormous increase over recent Octobers, pointing out that in fiscal year 2022, which was also really bad, 164,000 plus. So we're talking about a 66,000 increase from last year's horrible number. Fiscal year 21, so at the very end of the Trump administration, at the end of 2020, 71,929, fiscal year 20, 45,000, and uh, fiscal year 19, 60,000. So, uh, Jim, from 60,000 to 230,000, it's a massive increase. I don't even think that uh, includes what they call the gotaways, the people they know from their infrared cameras and so forth that cross the border that they never actually encountered and processed. And it's, I believe the number is now more than 5 million illegal crossed since Biden took office. It's completely out of control. It needs to be addressed, but unfortunately, we're not going to have uh, a position to address it. It looks like very much here, uh, other than some committee hearings. Yeah, and really deeply frustrating when you look at how it's more or less an open and shut case. If you subscribe to the theory that flawed Republican nominees are the primary reason why Republicans did not gain in this cycle the way they expected to, then that's a really consequential mistake. Let's assume that you know Democrats are always going to win statewide in a state like California, and Republicans are always going to win statewide in a state like uh, Texas. Well, they did not win a Senate hard-fought Senate race in Arizona. 
Republicans did not win, although it was close, a hard-fought gubernatorial race in Arizona. They did not win a pretty hard-fought, but in the end, not all that competitive governor's race in New Mexico. Um, Republican gains in that Texas border area weren't quite what they were looking for or hoping for. Um, I, I think it's fair to question the conventional wisdom on the right that the border is an issue that resonates with the electorate as a whole. Because it didn't even seem to resonate in the border states. Now, if you can't get people to say, because of illegal immigration, I'm going to vote for the Republican over the Democrat in places like Arizona and New Mexico, I don't know if it's going to be as effective in a place like New York State or Virginia or uh, the rest of the country. I, I you know, I think it's you know, there's been a, a kind of an assumption since Trump won in 2016 that illegal immigration is this if not a silver bullet issue, then a you know really effective issue that really galvanizes people. Election results like this make you have to really question that. Maybe I have to say, you know, maybe people are frustrated by it, but in the end, they don't they aren't willing to pull R over the D if they've got other issues that they're upset about, and or they think the Republican candidate is a nutcase. That is a really consequential mistake. I expect very little is going to happen over the next two years because Biden is convinced he's doing everything right, and he explicitly said he's going to do nothing different over the next two years. Had Republicans gained a whole lot, maybe you could have put a little bit of fear into the Biden administration and gotten a different approach. So that's where we are. It is a deeply depressing martini. Uh, I wish the news were different, folks, but that's the takeaway from extraordinarily disappointing results at the ballot box this year. Well, and things are going to change in Arizona because Doug Ducey had troops at the border down there. That's probably going to change with Katie Hobbs coming in. But yeah, folks think, especially if you're not in those states, that it doesn't uh, apply to you. But um, it does, because uh, if you know anyone in your town who has OD'd on fentanyl, for example, and most communities, unfortunately, have had that experience, guess how that happened? It's because the border's wide open and the cartels can push all that stuff through. But uh, different voters have different motivations for going to the polls. And I think you make a good point, Jim. If they couldn't get it over the finish line in the border states, Something's definitely wrong in terms of the messaging and and potentially the candidates as well, of course. And so a lot has to be better next time or else uh, we're just going to see more of this and the problem's only going to get worse. All right, on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And we take no pleasure in this one, I would say. I think I can speak on behalf of both of us with that. I think you and I both genuinely like Mike Pence. We've observed him over time. Uh, I'm pretty sure we've both interviewed him at at various times, especially back when he was in the House. We have talked about him as a potential presidential candidate a number of times. Ultimately, he ran for governor of Indiana in 2012. And since their governor's races are in the same year as presidential races, it makes it awkward to... Um, to run for president. I think he may have thought about it in 2016, ultimately did not. Uh, then he was governor for perhaps the most bizarre primary of the 2016 cycle. And that's saying something because you had, you know, you had Bob Knight out there campaigning for Trump and that was Ted Cruz's last stand. And he introduces Carly Fiorina uh, as his running mate, which lasted for a day or two until he dropped out. And Pence offered a very tepid endorsement of, of Cruz. And then uh, very shortly after that became the running mate, of course, for President Trump. He was a very, very, very loyal vice president for President Trump right up until uh, the point where he was uh, scampering for uh, safety there on January 6, 2021. Hadn't said a ton about it, but he'd been pretty uh, clear at Heritage Foundation speeches and elsewhere that he did not appreciate uh, the president's uh, actions leading up to that day or on that day. Now it's pretty clear Pence is running for president. He's got a new book out that's launching today, timed perfectly, of course, to come after the midterms and, and set the stage for a presidential run. But Jim, the reason this is crazy is because Mike Pence 
doesn't have a lane here, especially if Trump gets in, because the Trump people don't like him anymore because they think he was somehow disloyal to President Trump. And the, the people that don't like Trump don't like Mike Pence because he was loyal to Trump for four years. So why is he running and, and does he actually have a pulse here? I, yeah, I, you summarized my thinking on this exactly. I, I Is he thinking that if God, for, you know, as much as I disagree with President Trump, God forbid he has a heart attack or something like that, that he thinks that all the Trump supporters would then gravitate to Mike Pence? I don't think that's a likely scenario. I, I you know, It's very tough to see the vast majority of Trump supporters coming to embrace Mike Pence. Um, you, you'd think that a crowd chanting, hang Mike Pence, would pretty much be the end of the relationship, would pretty much be the end of anybody, you know, of Mike Pence's belief that he could eventually win over some segment of the diehard Trump supporters. Uh, and I, your point about the fact that Trump critics certainly don't embrace him. I mean, you know, go, you know, never mind National Review. Take a look at the dispatch. Take a look at the bulwark. Um you know, anybody who was a resolute Trump opponent during his presidency, by and large, sees Pence as a yes man, as an enabler, as somebody who was perfectly content to go along with everything they opposed right up until the very ending when Trump, you know, bizarrely believed that the vice president could simply declare that he and Donald Trump had won the election and that Congress would have no choice but to go along with it. I wish Mike Pence well. I think he has served the country, and I think he did something. Um, he did his duty. He did something extraordinarily brave. He was in literal life and death physical danger as he did it. And I think the country owes him a debt of gratitude. That said, I don't think that necessarily entitles you to the presidency. And I just, I think you, you summarized it well. I don't think there, I think the, one of the lessons of 2016 is for people not to get too hung up on the concept of lanes. The idea there's an establishment lane and there's a Christian conservative lane and there's a outsider reformer lane. You know, and actually, in the end, like just go out and try to win votes. Um, don't compete for lanes, compete for the nomination. And the problem is, is that um, Pence doesn't, I, you know, his approval rating is still okay. But even if people approve of you, it's not necessarily you are their first choice. See, I, I could see the, I, I guess maybe this idea is that, you know, DeSantis and Trump, you know, beat the heck out of each other and that. Pence will emerge as some sort of consensus candidate. And I just don't see things shaken out that way. Stranger things have happened. And I've, I've been talking, you know, last couple of days, making the point that there's an extraordinarily high chance that on January 20th, 2025, which by the way, a date that seems like it should belong in science fiction or something, <laughs> but it's just a little bit, more, you know, a little bit more than two years from now, somebody's going to take the oath of office. And there's an extraordinarily high chance that the name of the person taking the oath of office is one of four names. Either Joe Biden, again, Kamala Harris, Donald Trump, or Ron DeSantis. Now, if Biden chooses not to run and Harris isn't, you know, they see her as unelectable, could you see a Gavin Newsom or somebody jumping in? Yeah, it could happen. I don't think it's particularly likely right now. I think because the midterms went well, Democrats are going to convince themselves that Biden is their best bet. And certainly Biden wants to, to run again. Uh, there's always a chance that his health falters to the point where it's clearly not possible anymore. But we'll see how that shakes out. And I don't see a particularly clear path for anybody not named Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis to be the Republican nomination. Now, again, stranger things have happened, but anybody else is starting from like near zero or, or single digit support. You'd have to persuade a lot of Trump supporters and you have to persuade a lot of people who've decided Ron DeSantis is the best possible option. So, you know, I heard, so I saw Larry Hogan saying he was thinking about like, unless, you know, Mike Pompeo pretty clearly is interested Unless you really have a solid base of support, 
it's going to be really tough to build this up in this particular kind of cycle. And as we saw in 2016, the more non-Trump options they are, the more they split the vote and the more likely it is that Trump wins. So I certainly am hoping that those who don't want Trump consolidate behind someone before the first contest or or early in the primary process. By the way, we don't have dates for uh, primaries or caucuses yet. We're still not 100% sure that Iowa is going to go first. You can't necessarily blame Iowa Republicans for how Iowa Democrats screwed up their contest. But nonetheless, it's, you know, but uh, Greg, do you remember back in January 2020 when we thought that the Iowa caucus was going to be the biggest disaster of the year? <laughs> ah, the good old days when we simply, but I guess it was a good, a good, good preview of what it was like to sit there and watch the people in, unable to count votes. Uh, yeah, no kidding. No kidding. And the Democrats look like they're about to bust loose from Iowa's the first in the nation uh, caucus. So I know. Governor Sununu would be mad at me for even referring to Iowa's first in the nation because that's officially New Hampshire's title. But I'm not sure New Hampshire is going to be the first in the nation primary for them either. So that could shake things up. But here's my question, Jim. Uh, you just mentioned a bunch of names that are either very likely or pretty likely to run. Uh, Larry Hogan, Mike Pompeo, Donald Trump, uh, Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence. And I think you would also have to throw in at least uh, potential uh, candidacies from Nikki Haley and Glenn Youngkin. That's seven people. Now, what I remember from 2016 is that there were a lot of people running, and ultimately, uh, a lot of that redounded uh, to Trump's benefit. So uh, how crowded do you expect this field to get, and how would a crowded field affect a uh, Republican primary this time around? Well, again, like I said, the more you know, Trump starts with the most Republicans have voted for him twice. Uh, most Republicans, almost out of habit, are inclined to vote for him a third time, unless someone comes along and makes a case of, I am a better choice, and here's why. By the way, I think that's a fairly... I don't want to say easy case to make. I think it's pretty, there's a pretty compelling case that somebody like DeSantis gets you everything Trump gets you and none of the craziness. And he probably puts more swing states in play, et cetera, et cetera. But that remains to be seen. But the other thing is, I think some of these folks, there's a lot of people, you know, let everyone run and, and you know, don't let anybody be squeezed out. Don't tell, you know, everybody deserves a shot. I'm not sure I see things that way if I ever saw them that way. Um, I think some of these folks are basically doing book tours. Uh, or or self-promotional or wanting TV gigs and not really serious candidates. They like the attention. I don't begrudge any politician. Like I think the, the mayor of Miami, uh, Suarez, recently said that he's thinking about running for president. Now, I don't expect Suarez to be a key player in the 2024 Republican presidential nominee. But if you say, I'm thinking about it, well, that means people pay more attention to you. That means people lean in when you're when you're doing a TV appearance or giving a speech or something like that. If you say, like Tom Cotton recently did, yeah, I'm not running. Well, it means you don't have to pay that much attention to Tom Cotton over the next four years. By the way, Tom Cotton, I think, is a really good senator. And I think people should pay attention to him. And I think it's very good for him to say, you know what? I just don't have the support in this kind of environment. I'm a young guy. There are plenty of other cycles going to come down the pike. I can do good work in the Senate. I'd like to see more mentality of Tom Cotton's of the world. But I think right now, all the incentives are for the other side. And that's why you end up with people like, you know, Jim Gilmore getting 11 votes in Iowa. And then telling people, utterly convinced, he's going to win the New Hampshire primary. I like Jim well, Gilmore, but that was that's delusional. You know? <laughs> now Just as the NFL make... has a concussion protocol, I want a concussion protocol for the Republican <laughs> presidential primary. Well, we talked about the Republican side. Think about the Democratic side now. Because you had all these people, Kamala, Buttigieg, Newsom, perhaps somewhere deep in her psyche, Hillary Clinton, and, and a few other people around the country thinking, ah, well... This midterm is going to be terrible, but it's going to shove Joe Biden out the door and this is going to be my opportunity. And then all of a sudden things go much better for your party than they expected. And 
somehow deep down, while I'm sure they're happy that their party did better than expected with their own personal ambitions, which are not small with people at this level, you know, you got a lot of people going, oh, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> this was this was my window and it's not going to happen now. And now you got Pelosi and Clyburn and a bunch of other members of Congress saying, no, no, Biden, Biden's fine. I don't, I don't see any reason to, to, to change horses now. I did see a, 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 a note in Politico today. They got a column saying Democrats escaped a midterm thrashing. Here's how to primary Biden anyway. So there's still there's still the narrative out there that uh, he might not be the person you want to just give a uh, glide path to the nomination for at this point. But uh, the idea that he was going to get, uh, you know, shoved off the plank doesn't seem to be happening, at least not right away. Well, I was going to say, Biden is still the same guy he was the day before the election. He just happened to have his party not lose nearly as many seats as people thought they were going to. So everything we saw on the campaign trail and, you know, ah, my, my student loan thing was passed by two votes and, you know, where's Jackie? And, you know, all these things that made you think that Biden was losing his marbles, which, oh, by the way, I have an article about in the most recent issue of National Review. He's the same guy. He just, you know, is a little bit luckier or looks a little bit stronger or like a safer bet um, that uh, than he did a couple of days ago. But in the end, he's going to be two years older come come the presidential election. And he already seems old now. So it's not the craziest thing in the world for other other Democrats like Gavin Newsom to kind of hang around. Uh, and oh, by the way, I did see the very interesting, useful thing that uh, Doug Eldorf, uh, the husband of uh, Kamala Harris, said that if Biden chooses not to run, the party needs to rally around her. So one, I think he's being a good husband. And two, good news, Greg, you know, she's got one vote. <laughs> No, that's exactly right. I love watching the reverse skate by the media here because, you know, uh, they defended Biden's, you know, inexplicable stumbles, cluelessness on stage, uh, kind of forgetting where he was in the middle of his stories and so forth. And then right before the midterms, again, expecting the red wave, they started to kind of leak around the edges that, you know, maybe maybe another four years isn't a great idea. I bet now that the midterms went much better for Democrats than they expected. You're going to see uh, more defense of him than uh, ongoing uh, picking apart of his uh, ability to remain as president. There might be some who do it, but I don't. I think the narrative shift that was about to happen has just been thrown into neutral. I agree, and I think this is going to be a very odd confusion. I thought that you know the the Serenade Live sketch we talked about was yep. kind of like preparing de- young Democrats for hey. Biden's really old and Harris isn't very popular. We might have to have another messy primary. So just, you know, brace yourselves. And now I think it's less likely to happen, but I don't know. You never know when Biden might fall off the stage or something like that. So, you know, only time will tell, Greg. Yeah. Yeah. Well, probably needs to happen in the next six to nine months, though, if somebody's going to get get fired up and ready to roll against him. But we will see. Jim, have a great day. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast. If you don't already, please tell a friend about us as well. We'd love to have them aboard. Thank you also for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Always a big help to us. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. It is almost Christmas time. Go out and buy Jim's new novel, Gathering Five Storms, and the accompanying short story, Saving the Devil. Have a great Tuesday and join us again on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. You know, much of the media doesn't cover some of the most important news of the day. I'm Byron York from The Byron York Show. In the latest episodes, I talk about the midterm elections and the Republican over-optimism and underperformance that happened in those midterms and what it means for the next 
election. Don't forget to download and subscribe to the daily No Chit Chat podcast. I don't talk about every single issue in the news, just the ones you need to know the most. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.